Welcome back to Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today, Captain Michael Brasseur, is the co-founder and current Commodore of Task Force 5-9, which was created to rapidly integrate unmanned systems and artificial intelligence into Fifth Fleet operations. Prior to this role, Mike served as the Director for Naval Armaments Cooperation at NATO and the first director of NATO's startup Maritime Unmanned Systems Innovation and Coordination Cell. He has commanded two warships, and his writings on leadership and emerging disruptive technologies have appeared in The Hill, Atlanta Council, and Defense News. Mike, welcome to Accelerate Defense. I'd love to get started by getting a bit of your personal background and what set you on this path. Sure, Ken. It's uh, great to uh, be here on the podcast. You know, myself, I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up on an island. I've you know, always been surrounded by water. I guess kind of natural, I end up in the Navy. I did the Vanderbilt Navy ROTC program. I was thought about going to Duke, you know, but I was just going to give you a Duke joke there, but I know you there. <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to come back at you with the South Carolina joke. I, I taught at the Citadel, okay. which, uh, which island did you grow up on? I grew up on Hilton Head Island. Uh, Hilton Got Head it. Island. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned, I went to Vanderbilt on an ROTC scholarship Joined the Navy uh, as a surface warfare officer, served on uh, many ships, commanded two ships, one a patrol coastal. That's a 180 foot uh, warship. We have, you know, five of them out here. And actually, I commanded the ship over here, USS Whirlwind. And then I also commanded an LCS and sailed uh, LCS home from uh, Singapore, USS Fort Worth on her maiden deployment. And then I ended up in a really, really interesting job at NATO. I was at the U.S. mission to NATO and helped launch an initiative called the NATO Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative. And this particular initiative was focused basically on the vertical integration of unmanned systems above, on, and below the water, and then the horizontal integration across allies, and just kind of bringing that together in a way that could be helpful for the Alliance. So this is where I kind of got into the unmanned space, and that was 2018 to 2020. Still very well connected with the NATO Museum Initiative and have a lot of friends in that space. And we got over here in Bahrain. I was supposed to be the commander of Task Force 55, which has all our ships here in the region. And, uh, you know, Admiral Cooper and I, started iterating on the idea of an unmanned task force and started with a white paper, then went on to, we got a design sprint together, uh, basically a who's who of unmanned and artificial intelligence. This was actually about this time last year. This time last year, we were a two-page white paper. End of July, uh, we got together basically a who's who and unmanned and artificial intelligence, brought them out here to Bahrain and designed the task force And in September of last year, we stood up the Unmanned and Artificial Intelligence Task Force, Task Force 59, the first forward-deployed task force focused on unmanned systems and artificial intelligence. That's incredible progress. I'm curious, though, in your early days as a SWO, as a surface warfare officer, when did you begin to see the future 
that awaited? Were there moments when you realized, you know, oh my gosh, ships full of people are only part of the chess map here, unmanned is coming? When did you begin to realize that? You know, I would say kind of mid-career, you know, there's a lot of really mundane tasks that you do that you think, boy, that that could have really be done better <laughs> in many instances by an unmanned system. They call it the dull, the dirty, and the dumb task, you know, something where you don't necessarily need a human, but that machine can give you persistent presence and, you know, does not get fatigued and can handle the weather and this sort of stuff. So that that was kind of mid-career after my PC command. So you're at Fifth Fleet now. And before we dive into the details of Task Force 59, can you just give the brief overview for the uninitiated of your AOR? I mean, Fifth Fleet has some responsibilities. Yes, and it's a vast and very dynamic AOR. You know, it starts basically from the Suez Canal, goes down through the Red Sea, in through the Gulf of Aden, you know, around the Horn of Africa, into the Northern Arabian Sea, into the Gulf of Oman, and then into the Arabian Gulf. And so just as I kind of walked you around the Arabian Peninsula there, there's three major choke points. And uh, this is kind of the strategic crossroads between Europe and Asia, And those strategic choke points are critical to the global economy. And we saw, you know, when motor vessel Evergreen got sideways in the Suez Canal, and that basically choked off the economy for a period of a a week and a half, I believe it was. So strategic importance, dynamic, it's hot, it's sandy, it's salty. You know, it's, it's a really, really challenging environment to operate in. So that's a little bit uh, about the Fifth Fleet AOR. I did a couple deployments in Fifth Fleet back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I just cannot fathom how dynamically the threats have evolved. Can you give me your perspective on the changing strategic threats that you are facing. Obviously, you've got the choke points. You've mentioned the harsh environment, but you've also got some really committed adversaries. You know, Ken, it's interesting. I think probably what's changed since you were here is the opportunity to partner with our regional partners in new ways. And, you know, especially with unmanned and artificial intelligence to get after some of those threats that you were dealing with that we still have to deal with many of them to this day. So I think it's it's a real big opportunity here to leverage tech in new ways to get after some of these problems that have been challenging us for years now. And leveraging tech is not to put too fine a point on it, the mission of Task Force 59. Tell us about what you're doing. Yeah, so what we're all about is the rapid adoption of unmanned systems and artificial intelligence into fleet operations to ultimately deter that malign activity that you were referring to and ensure the fleet flow of commerce throughout the region and through those three choke points we mentioned. So it's all about rapid adoption of tech. We are mostly in the dual-use commercial tech space. There's a lot of advantages to that. It's affordable. It's good. 
it's fast, it helps us solve our our challenges now. So that's primarily uh, the space that Task Force 59 is operating on. We're collaborative. It's in our DNA. As I mentioned, my experience goes back to NATO, and that's a very collaborative environment. And we have that same sort of interaction with partners here. It's a very, very exciting time right now here in the Arabian Gulf. And your task force is is obviously forward deployed. It's operational. But how does it interface with the Navy-wide unmanned task force that was uh, announced last year, September, I believe. Well, it was announced basically the same time we were announced. And you should know the chair of the unmanned or the executive director for the unmanned task force, that's the CNO's task force, was here at our design sprint a few months earlier, July of last year, helping us design the task force from the very, very beginning. And that sort of collaboration has only increased since we've launched in September. I speak to the executive director of the Unmanned Task Force daily, sometimes five times a day. So that there's really no daylight between us and that effort. And, and this effort is very, very synergistic with the CNO's Unmanned Task Force. What is success look like for you a year from now and then over the horizon? What, if we put it in commercial terms, are your objectives and key results? Well, you know, I think we're having some early success right now, Ken. There's really a momentum building here in theater. It's almost tangible. I'll just give you, you know, in the last week and a half, I visited several key partners And their level of enthusiasm for our effort and that ability to work side by side in the unmanned and artificial intelligence space is, like I said, it's almost tangible. You can feel the excitement, but it's more, it's progressed more past excitement. We've done lots of bilaterals. We've done the world's largest unmanned systems, uh, maritime unmanned systems exercise, IMX. So, we are kind of experiencing early successes that are ultimately building towards a collaborative effort to get a lot of sensors out on the water so we can understand what's happening out there and then sift through all the information that those sensors are providing with artificial intelligence to highlight what's outside the normal patterns of life so we can really direct our manned assets more precisely. So that's kind of the grand vision, and we're making really, really strong progress towards that, and we're doing it in short order. The pace of this effort is really, really exciting. I'm really interested in the collaborative nature of that effort. Surely you are you're learning things that would benefit the wider Navy S&T community and Navy concept writers, how do those learnings get shared in a way that is efficient, that is actionable? How is what you're doing propagated the lessons learned throughout the fleet? Ken, the key mechanism of that sort of sharing is the CNO's unmanned task force. We have a call with them weekly where all the key stakeholders are on that call. We're providing real-time updates of what we're doing here, lessons learned. 
on that call. And then that call spawns a lot of follow-up calls, emails uh, with our teams. We've also had folks from all across the Navy integrated with us out here. So that sort of level of sharing in real time, our learning. And again, I come back to the pace, the pace of learning that's happening right now, because we are doing, and I want to make very, very clear, Ken, we don't have all the answers. We are doing, in many instances, we're getting it wrong, but we're learning, we're adjusting, we're improving, we're sharing, and we're building capability very, very fast. It sounds very much like a tech innovation mindset. How does that mesh with the Navy's culture, which is you know very much geared towards minimizing risk? So I'm glad you picked up on that, Ken. Our tolerance for risk at Task Force 5-9 is probably higher than many of our peers. That can be uncomfortable, but we believe you know you don't really discover new capabilities unless you're willing to take risks. We do mitigate a lot of this risk by doing it in benign environments before going out towards more challenging situations. But we do have a high tolerance for risk. We do have a very, very exciting and smart team. I'll just give you a few examples if you oblige me. My deputy commodore who helped, you know, basically co-found Task Force 59 with me was the CEO, he's a reservist, he was the CEO of a $1 billion cybersecurity company. I recruited the top PC captain from the waterfront, Lieutenant Commander Ray Miller. He's got 700 days of experience at sea in the past four years, from the high north to the South China Sea. And he most recently was a captain of one of our PCs out here. I've got two Forbes 30 under 30s on my team. One just came from the Hill. She was also on the Defense Innovation Board. So you get kind of that sort of talent all focused on those challenges, which you kind of alluded to early on. And there's this really sort of creative mood. It's not your standard Navy task force. And it's an absolute thrill ride, Ken. I It's the joy of my professional life, working with these people focused on a real, real problems moving very, very fast. It sounds like you've got the right talent and the right team. How do they approach the perennial problem in situations like this, the chicken and egg problem of needing to understand how a technology will be used to be able to assess it while also needing to understand what that technology is capable of in order to understand how it can be used. So this is, and I just kind of touched on a few of the folks on the team, but there's this intellectual diversity that really approaches problems from multiple angles. So you've you've got a world-class operator with, you know, a cybersecurity CEO, some expertise in 5G and all emerging tech, And you get those people focused on operational problems, bounded. You know, we're not trying to boil the ocean here. We're trying to solve real problems. And then, most importantly, you go out and you do, right? We are in the mature, dual-use commercial tech space. We want stuff, and we know kit 
and tools are out there that can help solve our challenges now. And that's the space we're operating in. So, and in many instances, Ken, what happens is we may go into an exercise or an experiment thinking the particular kit or AI application is going to perform one way. And then we start to see the potential of other concepts of operations. And we start to mature those through additional reps and sets. So yeah, that sort of diversity of experience is so valuable in this space. And then just the value of doing. And we've done a lot. I mean, we've got over 10,000 hours of experience at this point. So we're not novices. <laughs> we're, we're, we're advancing you know, relatively quickly. You referred to both Kit and AI applications. How would you characterize the balance of your tech assessments between hardware and software? Do you skew in favor of one or the other? Okay, so and when I said kid, I'm talking about you know maritime robotics above, on, and below the water, unmanned systems above, on, and below the water, and artificial intelligence. And this, you know, the fact that we are a task force about unmanned systems and artificial intelligence is not an accident. We did that intentionally. We see these two as inextricably linked, right? They go together. The unmanned systems, and we're, we're in the affordable, attritable unmanned systems. There's a quality in quantity. So we're trying to get a lot of sensors out on the water to get, you know, cover more ground, but also get a lot of different sensors out there. And that is powering the machine learning and AI tools to give us key insights and highlight for us what's outside the normal pattern of life so we can be very, very precise with uh, the deployment of our manned assets. So the balance, I would say, is 50-50, I would guess. I would say it's about an equal balance of our focus. You know, I know a lot of folks are focused on the robots. We are really, really focused on both the robots, the artificial intelligence, and then all those sort of enabling technologies, the mesh networks, the cloud computing, all the stuff that really power these machine learning and AI tools. For that software piece, are you leveraging a modular open systems approach? Are there standards that companies can read and integrate into their development efforts, or are they being defined? They're being defined. We are very closely connected with the NATO effort. You know, the NATO standard tends to be the gold standard as far as integration. We very much are in favor of an open architecture that allows many different players to connect in, provide data, and start to build those databases that can be exploited with machine learning and AI. So we are... As I mentioned, yeah, it's early days. We're learning a lot. We're doing a lot of learning for a lot of our Navy uh, partners, be it Project Overmatch and, and other folks across the Navy. We're doing a lot of learning because this is, you know, it's one thing to see it on a PowerPoint. It's another thing to integrate a bunch of systems in the real world. And we've done that multiple times. Uh, we did that at IMX and we've done it during many of our bilateral exercises. We've been talking mostly about the Navy. 
surely the other services are looking at what you're doing and hopefully seeing the gauntlet thrown and, and, and stepping up. How have your efforts been received by the other services? Very, very warmly. You know, obviously we're here in Central Command. General Carrilla, the new CENTCOM commander, did some amazing work at the 18th. We have kind of much the similar approach I spoke to about NATO, kind of vertically. We look at the systems from seabed to space. And then horizontally, we're looking to integrate across our fellow task forces. So the Navy task forces here, across the joint force, you know, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and across our partners. And I'll just give you a few quick examples AFWorks was at our digital ocean prototype in the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, We went to Army Futures Command in Austin. But the Marines and us work very, very closely on a lot of our USV efforts. Coast Guard, actually, uh, the Commandant of the Coast Guard is out here this week. They really see Fifth Fleet as an opportunity to test and evaluate in a very, very challenging environment. That's the same approach we have. So there's great collaboration across the joint force. And as I alluded to earlier, that continues across with partners. And that's happening in real time. And then if you go up one level, OSD, you know, DIU is leading a major, major uh, call to industry for us. And we're collaborating with them on that to get a really, really wide net of capabilities and see them in the real world in a very, very challenging environment. So I could go on and longer, but I think that's a good uh, flavor of this type of collaboration that's happening across the joint force. Is that call to industry you referenced and, and the wide net, to stick with the metaphor, is the mesh fine enough to grab those non-traditional innovators, the ones that are coming up with solutions that we can't even conceive of because their approach is is so niche and and fine-tuned in some cases. The primes get get a ton of the attention in most of the contracts, but you know, some of the the most cutting-edge innovation happens kind of off the grid. How are you catching those? So uh, Ken, first of all, our effort to date has been largely small and medium enterprises. So it is those folks on the on the leading edge of innovation uh, that are out here in, in the real world operating. And then that large net we cast, I am certain, I am certain it's going to pick up some of that really, really talented stuff that we were probably weren't expecting. I am slightly removed from the evaluation process, but I can tell you that, you know, we got over a hundred companies And they're certainly not all primes. And I think there's some companies with just five people on board. So we're really, really looking forward to seeing what that delivers and then seeing it out here in the real world. And then if it does help solve some of our challenges, then keeping it out here and continuing to work with it in the operational environment. Are those smaller companies sharing with you some of the challenges of working within the DOD ecosystem. That's something we spend a lot of time talking about on this show. There's sometimes the cultural clash. There's the economic challenge of navigating through that valley of death. I mean, 
the upside is huge, but the barriers for some of these non-traditional smaller innovators can be really discouraging. You know, Ken, they are, but part of our value proposition is really bringing the solution provider, whether it's Prime or, you know, a company with five people, together with the problem holders, us, the operator. And you can see not only the value of that value proposition, but you can see the mission focus of not only our team, but the folks providing the solutions. And they just really, really enjoy working with our team on tough problems. So I think, you know, this this could be a potential way ahead in this space. I know a lot of the experimentation and, and whatnot typically happens, you know, back stateside or in a laboratory. But, you know, as I alluded to, this is the ultimate laboratory out here. It's very, very challenging space to operate. And you're, you're working with real operators. And if the solutions or, you know, if they help us solve our problems, then that's a pretty strong validation of that particular tech. When you're formalizing your relationships with those smaller players, what kind of contract vehicles are you using? Is it a time and materials thing or more of a, a CRADA, Cooperative Research and, and Development Agreement? Are you able to adapt to their particular needs when it comes to contracting? So I, I'm not going to go into the specifics of contracting other than say we're using a contractor-owned, contractor-operated model. And we just kind of add, you know, one thing on top of it, Navy oversight. And what we really, really like about this model is there's a lot of things uh, that we like about it. It's fast, number one. Number two, it gets us the latest technology now, vice legacy stuff in two, three, five years from now. The folks are, you know, they deeply value feedback. So, and we're seeing almost not real-time, but near real-time iteration on feedback and improvement of the platforms or unmanned systems. And then there's some flexibility there. And then there's no tail. There's no tail. So, you know, I have a small task force of 20, just over 20 people. We are built for speed. We're built to scale. And I could envision us having, you know, 20, 30, you know, 50 unmanned systems with this same team with that model. You know, there are certain limitations to that model, and we are navigating those as we approach them. But that's the model we're using. It has a lot of advantages. We're pretty excited about it. I love hearing that you're built to scale. Is the Task Force 59 approach being considered by other AORs as a successful model to replicate? Ken, I can tell you generally, yes. I'm not going to tell you specifically who, other than, you know, through that unmanned task force, we are sharing our lessons with other fleets. We obviously work very closely, you know, from the top down. So Admiral Cooper is talking to Admiral Paparo and Pack Fleet and, and Admiral Back and Sixth Fleet. And that sort of partnership across fleets is happening on the task force level as well. We've learned a lot of the hard lessons. We're really starting to hit our stride 
And we're trying to build a model that can be replicated across fleets if other fleets choose to do that. If they choose to do that, we're happy uh, to go out and work alongside with them if, if and when they decide to stand them up or just share kind of our lessons learned. But this is definitely um, you know, a collaborative environment across fleets, and that's enabled by the unmanned task force and those relationships that the fleet commanders have. Part of your success, I got to imagine, is your, your approach to staffing, picking the best and brightest, as, as we've already talked about, and relying heavily on reservists. Can you talk a little bit about the talent pool that you're able to tap into by going into the reservist pool? Again, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question because, you know, we could talk about robots and AI, but for me, this task force and our success to date has been about the people. I'll just give you a few examples. There's a real sort of mission focus, and the task force has become a magnet for talent in the reserves. Ensign Moore, who I was referring to earlier, she's a Forbes 30 under 30. She was working on the Hill on the House Armed Services Committee, was on the Defense Innovation Board, Harvard undergrad, you know, joined the reserves to serve. Heard about Task Force 5-9, had been operating kind of in the D.C. environment, but wanted to focus on a real challenge and help solve it. So she left a very, very good job. She was a two-star equivalent at that job, left D.C. and joined our team, and she has been exceptional. Another one of the reservists that is helping us out, uh, Elsa Kania. She's uh, working on her PhD at Harvard, written a book called Fighting to Innovate on Chinese Innovation. A really, really super talented officer. She's also in the reserves of Lieutenant Junior Grade. She came out for a period of six to eight weeks and really helped us with that. What I've discovered is that there's so much really, really uh, talented folks across the reserves and they want to help solve problems like these. We have a really nice blend of active duty as well. The PC captain I was referring to is active duty. I'm active duty. My chief of staff is active duty. But that sort of diversity of expertise really leads to a lot of innovation and new, novel approaches to problems. And it's it's just been a really really rewarding experience to see folks gravitate to a real real tough challenge. Well, Michael, this has been really enlightening. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Task Force 5-9 and your team and the challenges you're tackling? Yeah, Ken, well, first of all, thank you for uh, the opportunity to join you on the, on the podcast here. I'm honored to be among one of your esteemed guests. Uh, for me, I would just want to leave you with, at Task Force 59, we are really focused on building. We are not tinkering here. Uh, we're trying to enhance maritime domain awareness and ensure the free flow of commerce by leveraging exciting dual-use commercial technologies that are available now. There's a pace to what we're doing. There's a purpose and there's a real, real focus 
to move fast and do so in a partnered effort with our regional partners. And then uh, as we kind of alluded to across the uh, joint force as well. So thank you for the opportunity to chat. I hope your audience enjoyed the discussion. I know I did. Thank you, Ken. Great having you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again to Captain Brasseur for joining us on this episode of Accelerate Defense. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And follow the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out. Accelerate Defense is a podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.